Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. This year has seen astonishing growth in direct investment in international equities. Sounds interesting. I know we had heaps of people coming on buying Australian equities for the first time, but the real growth has been in international, especially on NAB trade. And we're seeing more and more investors become familiar with direct stocks internationally beyond the fangs, which was pretty much all we were talking about for a little while. Uh, they were so popular over the last decade, but there's obviously this universe of other amazing stuff out there. Today, I'm joined by Tim Samway, the chair of Hyperion Asset Management, to talk about a world in which a rising tide doesn't float all boats. You can't just buy whatever you want and hope things are going to work and how to find winners in international markets. Tim, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, good, to, good to be here. So, Tim... In a world emerging from COVID, you've expressed the view, and I should say, so Hyperion, uh, you guys have an extraordinary record in managing international equities, and you put out a lot of thought leadership pieces which explain your views. So that's what I'm drawing from here. You've expressed the view that growth will be concentrated coming out of this extraordinary 12 months that we've had. Others are going to stagnate quite significantly. Can you talk us through where you think growth is going to come from? Yes, yes. So it, it's interesting. So growth can be in just economic growth, that is GDP growth, or it can be growth in earnings. And I, I guess everybody listening to this podcast will be interested in where the earnings growth is coming from, because that's going to pay their bills. And, and we think it's going to be largely as a, you know, if I just look at a, at a, a large group, it's innovation, disruption, uh, software uh, moving to the centre of uh, society and the centre of businesses. Um, if you think about the last uh, 30 years, 25 years, the internet and the iPhone and, and similar have really have been transformative. And, uh, you know, it's only... So I started work in 1978 as a young uh, trainee accountant back in, uh, back in Newcastle, uh, New South Wales, and... Um, I remember one of my first jobs, which was actually going down to the post office to get the yellow pages to look up something, you know, a, a business that was in another city because you didn't keep the yellow pages for other cities. And that's how a lot of businesses were effectively protected from competition. That is, it was just hard to work out who your competitors were or who a competitor was uh, in another city. And, and just think of how the internet and the iPhone, for example, have changed all of that and you know, you want to buy a product today, you go onto Amazon, you don't care where it comes from as long as it can be delivered on Friday and it's low cost. So things have really changed. So when you look at the, the um, where, where we think it'll be concentrated is those businesses that are able to innovate and disruption and use the technologies and, uh, and the, the, the software that's available these days to provide a better product or a better service to their customer base. Yeah, I love your example there. I've said to many listeners before and other people when I'm giving presentations that the first place that I ever placed a trade I had to look up a stockbroker in the yellow pages. I had to ring them up. I had to ask for a broker yeah. to do it for me. Like the world's changed Completely. astonishingly. Oh, you know, there'd be plenty of people listening who've never used the yellow pages. They've never seen one. No, that'd be right. That'd be right. So with that dramatic change and we're all familiar with it um i think perhaps some young people uh may not 
appreciate, I guess, the magnitude of the change and how complex some of it has been, but we're all getting very used to it. But you have expressed the view that we're heading into a low growth environment. You've got some companies that are growing dramatically. A lot of GDP numbers are looking amazing right now, but we have to remember, obviously, that they fell dramatically during COVID. Now they're rebounding from a much lower base. So when you get this extraordinary sort of 8% growth rate, that's because things fell 10% last year. Are there specific areas that you think are more likely to stagnate than others? Yeah, so you're right. We're in a cyclical recovery. Um, And in a cyclical recovery, as we're experiencing now from the other side of COVID, the rising tide actually does lift all boats for a while, but not for very long because, um, unfortunately, cyclical recoveries are just that. They're they're cycles. Um, We think actually over the next 10 the 20 years, looking quite a long way forward, that um, economic growth is going to be flat, as it actually has been over the last 10 years. And in fact, if you look back the last 20 years, GDP growth worldwide has been slowly decreasing. And while there have been ups and downs, so some years look better than others, and some years look actually quite good, a line of best fit through long-term economic growth is down. And, and that means that a lot of businesses that rely on that economic growth to produce growth in their revenue, in their sales and profits actually will struggle. And when we do the analysis of the uh, of markets, here in Australia, it's about 70% of the index is what we would call old world businesses that uh, actually rely on underlying economic growth to make profits. Um, and in a period where you look forward the next 10 years and GDP growth remains low, then there's a lot of unprofitable businesses. Whereas businesses that have been built in the last 20 years, maybe 25 years, and are using uh, the techniques and they're using the software and the technology to actually provide better products and services to their customers are stealing market share from those old world businesses. And so they're the ones you want to be in. And clearly the, the old world businesses are the ones you don't want to be in. Can you give us a few examples of some of those old world areas? I mean, 70% of the ASX, that's going to put a real ripple of fear through some of our listeners who have perhaps 70% of their portfolio in Australian equities. So so at the risk of everybody just turning off now, as I say some names, um, you know, commodity-based businesses, mining stocks, banks, financial services, uh, that aren't uh, aren't working with the new technologies. That's that's nearly fifty percent of the index in one go. Um, those businesses are really going to struggle in a low GDP environment. Um, they're essentially businesses that are being sniped. Like the banks are getting sniped away by new uh, new businesses that are just. They're looking at the banks and saying, "Okay, I could do that one service that that bank does. I can do it with with very little uh, capital base." And I could come in and do this much more efficiently and I could take control of their customers. Um, You have seen it here in Australia in Afterpay and you've seen it in, uh, so they're on the the new age side and you've seen it internationally in businesses like uh, PayPal and Square who are basically uh, stealing away business from traditional financial services businesses by giving people the offerings that they need at the price they want to pay. 
I don't think anyone's going to switch off. <laughs> I think so many of our investors, um, I will tell you now that over 50% of our book is in mining stocks and banks. So Australian investors are heavily overweight those, but they have been drifting out of financials for quite a while. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and appreciating yeah. that there are always going to be headwinds in that space and maybe they need to diversify. So I think most of our investors appreciate they do need to diversify, but finding the right kinds of companies in Australia is really challenging. You can't just, if you missed Afterpay, and I hear from a lot of people, they're very sad that they missed Afterpay, even though it's pulled back recently. You're looking for those those extraordinary growth companies. It just feels a little bit more challenging here. So when you're talking about this winner-takes-all environment, you've already given a couple of examples. Can you talk us through what you mean there? Yeah, so uh, there are businesses that have uh, that have created a first mover advantage. So they came up with an idea before anybody else, and they got a lead in that particular market before anybody else came to market. And because these businesses are largely software-based businesses, um, the amount of intellectual capital they create becomes a barrier to others. Entering. So, I mean, some examples of those are the network effect businesses, businesses that attract the buyers, attract the sellers. And what happens is the more buyers there are, the more sellers there'll be. And the more sellers there are, the more buyers there are. And so you get this virtuous circle of everybody wanting to come to that marketplace. So, classic examples have been businesses like Facebook and Google with their, you know, with their various services, because it's based on a network effect. And it's very hard to compete against that because if you're a new service that comes in and you you come up with your new offering, um, if you're a buyer and there's only a couple of sellers on that new offering, you're not interested. And we discovered this pretty early here in Australia with businesses like realestate.com.au, REA. Um, you know, everybody started going to REA and, and Domain, but more actually were going to REA to actually look for properties. And all the sellers went to REA to sell their property. And the more that they were there selling, the more buyers went there because they were there was more choice and you get this virtuous circle. Um, in the first mover advantage, so that was clearly a first mover advantage. In other areas, uh, businesses like Salesforce, which um, it's a software as a service. So you take it you know, through your computer, um, through systems and supply to staff to enable them to provide better customer service a better sales tracking um, and uh, better marketing, uh, better marketing tools. Uh, once again, they got such a strong lead in that uh, they were they were first, they were big. Uh, they've they've got millions of hours of programming already. I mean, more than millions, t- tens of millions of hours of programming already in their system. It's just so hard for somebody else to come up with a service that competes against that. So, what we see is. These businesses get in early and the the size of the the addressable market is often global because they don't have that problem, you know, the yellow pages problem where businesses were essentially regional monopolies in those old days. These businesses, once they learn how to reprogram their software into various languages, can, can expand into virtually every country in the world. Yeah, there's some really interesting examples, and yeah, I'm sure we all have plenty of examples from our own personal lives at the moment. Uh, all my friends are trying to trying to find the perfect app to uh, to manage a kid's soccer team, and uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'd love to know who the first mover is that everybody should be using. It'd be quite helpful right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you're looking at this kind of 
when you're looking for that advantage, you obviously want to identify it pretty early. I think one of the things that is expressed to me by investors very frequently at the moment is that they've missed the boat on some of these big winners and they're fully aware that Facebook owns its market, that Google owns its market and so on, but they, they're they concerned that, you know, they're paying too much to get into those companies and obviously they're looking for the next Afterpay and the next Google rather than the current one. Mm. Are there particular characteristics you look for early in a company's growth to give you a feel for whether or not it is likely to be dominant? Yes, yes. So um, a great product or a great service. So one that's a standout. So one of the things that that is advantageous about this new world in terms of investing is that a lot of the products and services that we look to invest in can actually be shopped from your office or your home. And so we look for really great products or services. We look at the dedication of that business to reinvest in that product or service. And often we're 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 struck by just how much each of those companies is reinvesting more than their competitors in their product to stay ahead uh, uh, of their competitors. We look to see the strength of the competitors. So uh, if we can see a gap, I mean, that REA versus domain example in Australia is a good one. We could actually count the number of houses for sale in each of those suburbs of each of the on each of the apps and you could work out exactly how much advantage one has rea had over domain Um, and you had to do that over multiple suburbs because they each had various strengths in various areas but but assessing the competitor and then as i said before addressing the size of the um addressing the size of the market so there's no point in having a great product that you can only sell 500 of you need something that can be global and, and you know and worldwide, and uh, and have an immense market. And so, if you get those things together, they're sort of the things that we're looking. I mean, there's much more than that. Clearly, we want businesses that aren't risky, where you don't you don't risk permanent uh, step down in the value of your investors' capital. That's really important. We think that that's everybody thinks that way when they go into the market. That is, how much how much can I make versus a term deposit is one of those sentences that I think it just has just led us for years. So we we got to be careful that we don't go too early into into a something into a concept stock that we're not sure of how it looks like it's going to turn out. But certainly, when you can actually use the product or use the service and try it and you and you stand there and you in front of your computer and go wow that is amazing that's the first point where you can start to look and see whether a win something's a winner or not and of course we talk to customers as well so um you know we go out and about and talk to other people using them and, and ask them you know why would you use this product versus that product do that a lot yeah that's an interesting one uh- Tiny small cap that's been quite popular uh, for a number of investors is tinybeans.com. And it was started by some friends of friends of ours. We started using it when our kids were tiny. It's basically a photo sharing app, but it's very, very private. Um, And it's quite interesting. Again, that was very easy to do your research on. You knew who was using it. You'd find out what their experience was and all those kinds of things. On that kind of business model where you can see that it's extremely attractive to the user, you can see why they would want to use it, the appeal is there, it's a great experience and so on, sometimes it's a little bit challenging to understand how they're actually going to make money. Yeah. Uh, thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I mean, um, the challenge with all these businesses is actually taking a great idea and turning it into a money-making idea. And look, there's a couple of things. Firstly, as I said before, we've got to look at the total market size. And, and that that normally is a challenge for some, for some businesses. I, I remember my days years and years ago as a stockbroker sitting in meetings where uh, people with great ideas would come to our office and say to us, you know, we're going to get 2% market share, that will make us X million dollars. And, and of course, um, I hate to say it, but often they'd leave the room and we'd fall around what about laughing because those were in the days in the 80s where it was almost impossible to take an idea to the world. You know, if you were in Australia, taking an idea and running it globally and getting a global market share was very, very difficult. And today that's completely different. If you come up with a really great idea and, and look at some of the fabulous Australian businesses that have started with a great idea and have gone to the world, Atlassian is one of them, um, you know, it just stands out that that was a great idea and has, has gone, you know, round and round the world now. There's virtually hardly a software, um, somebody writing software who is not using some of the Atlassian products to, to guide them through that process. Um, but, but, I mean, there's a lot of analysis. I'm, clearly, I'm not going to bore all your listeners with, you know, how we go through and calculate the, the margins and the cash flows and, and, and the like. But, but, but I'm afraid that's part of the process is actually sitting down and understanding the financial outcomes and working out how much equity you need to raise to, uh, to do so and uh, whether the business is going to be capital heavy. So obviously we stay away from capital heavy businesses because they, they require a lot of upfront investment um, and they, they require that investment to be renewed regularly. So we like capital light businesses, but, but there's a lot of work in doing in crunching the numbers, but by and large, I still take you back to, if it's a great product and a lot of people want to buy it, um, and you can see a long path for lots of people to buy actually onto a winner because costs can be controlled but you know but revenue is the thing that you what you really want in life rising long-term revenue streams which create compounded earnings are how to make money yeah so we don't get too carried away with the uh the sexy interface we want to know that the uh the the monetary uh elements are there behind it all yeah yeah so obviously understanding the financials is one of the biggest issues but also one wonders if there are key risks to consider when you look at the kind of dynamic. Um, regulatory risk seems like a really key issue, particularly for the very big tech stocks. Is that something you guys look out for? Of course it is. Um, you know, it's almost inevitable. Uh, we, we look at, we look at uh, regulation um, uh, as just sort of an inevitable outcome of a business that gets into a market where the winner takes all or winner takes most that sooner or later, um, governments, particularly around the world, will say there is a change in the competitive landscape and, and we need to look into this. So clearly Google and Facebook have been at the edge of all of this. They've had a harder time in Europe where the um, competition laws uh, are much stricter with respect to how you compete against others. So in the same industry. So if you, if you use practices that unfairly treat your competitors, uh, that's looked on less favourably. In the US, uh, it's, a, it's a more lenient approach where it, the, the test is much more focused on the benefit to the end user. And it's hard under those circumstances not to see the benefit to the end user, whether it's Amazon, Google or Facebook. So, you know, Facebook and Google are essentially free services to users. Um, the advertisers pay. Um, and Amazon has allowed 
millions of people to sell products more easily and it's allowed millions and millions of people to buy more products, get them faster and pay less than they ever had before. So you've got to come up with another way of looking at the regulation tests there. But having said that, um, you know, the, the authorities are saying, how are you abusing this? You know, we're going to look at you and make sure that you're not doing things that are abusive. And I'd have to say all three of those businesses over the years have modified their approaches to make sure they're compliant. Um, but but I, I would actually put one proviso over all of this is that Hyperion has reduced its weights in businesses like Facebook and Google over the last year in recognition that they're fantastic businesses and they're well-priced at the moment, but there's also the risk of regulation. Um, and uh, as a result, um, uh, we've, uh, we've reduced our holdings um, over the last year in them just to manage that risk. That's a really interesting point. I think for a lot of people, they understand just how quickly regulation changes uh, and even rhetoric. I mean, we've seen how quickly things can change yeah. with tariffs and trade wars and so on. Uh, just looking at a business model that makes perfect sense, and then suddenly it doesn't because well, uh, that's right. And 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 uh, and it's not just regulation. I mean, the reality is that the threat of new entrants in some of these uh, businesses is something that you've got to be very careful of. Like these businesses, generally that we're investing in, are innovative and disruptive. So they take an old world market, they come up with a new way of doing things, and they become virtual successes overnight. But that doesn't mean in some cases that somebody can't come up with a better mousetrap and we've got to be very careful watching for the threat of new entrants and in fact in some markets uh what's a good example like the shift from linear entertainment delivery to on demand so you know people cutting cables and buying netflix and disney plus and amazon prime and the like we looked at that market and thought no you know what we're going to own the set top box roku because that's the stable component of this market. Um, we think it's uh, very hard to pick the winner in all of those. And, and we're fully aware that as happened in our household is that um, you know what happens is you watch virtually, it seems the whole uh, Netflix catalog at the time, and then you cut that cable and move on to what's on stand here in Australia. And, and you might binge watch that for a while. Um, and then there's Amazon Prime and then you know, Amazon Prime had a whole bunch of great programs and then didn't, you know, didn't put out anything for a while. And then, you know, you can just see people uh, moving between them. And so rather than trying to pick a winner out of those, we've picked, uh, we've picked set-top box as the way to, you know, the platform that delivers it to the customers as a, as a much more stable item. Uh, whereas perhaps in music, businesses like Spotify have become the clear winner. So with over 300 and 340 million, over 340 million customers worldwide in 175 countries, they've outstripped all their competitors and they look like the winner in that market. And now it's pretty hard for others to come in and, and compete against them as they've, they've, they've locked up the, that market um, and, and the future of that market pretty, pretty well. But once again, Hey, we've got to make sure we're on the on the look for new entrants that might um, that might give them a run for their money. Oh, they're such good examples. I think we can all relate to them as well. That uh, that issue of uh, multiple streaming providers in your house is an interesting one, where yeah. you know many of us would have balked at paying a single aggregator years ago, you know, fifty dollars or seventy five dollars a month. But if you add up all the little ones you've got, you're probably paying that now anyway. Easily, easily. <laughs> 
It's, uh, it's amazing how quickly it happens, particularly if you've got quite a wide range of interests in your household. Um, so we've got sport and children, which are completely yeah. different groups, yeah, <laughs> very I know. different I know. interests. No, I know. It, it's given you the feeling that you've got choice, that is you could you could cut them off. But I'm mean, telling you what happens is people stay connected um, and it only when, when when there's a bit of a downturn, that's when they often look at it and say, um, oh, gee, I can't afford that $80 a month. What are we going to lose? You know, which which of these services are we going to lose? Now, um, last year was particularly interesting because people were stuck at home and basically they took a lot of subscriptions that they might have otherwise might not have otherwise done because they spent far too much at home, time at home. But, um, yeah, the problem still remains that um, it's hard to pick a winner in those areas and, and invest in that one exclusively. Yeah, so true. Uh, so I'm dying to talk about this one because your largest portfolio holding is Tesla. This, and I talk about it all the time to the point where someone was like, okay, you mentioned it every week now, you need to drop it. Uh, Tesla is uh. by far our most popular international stock on NABTRADE. Mm-hmm. So you can buy directly international stocks, still very, very small number of people who do it relative to the number who trade Australian equities. People have more confidence, obviously, with the things that they're a bit more familiar with. But Tesla, if you're going offshore, it used to be Apple. Was Amazon for a while? Now it's Tesla. That's what you're going to buy as your number one stock. Uh, and very few people have been willing to sell it, despite the extraordinary ride that they have been on since they've been holding it. It's been a couple of years. Can you tell us why you like it? Well, if you run those rules um, that I told you about earlier. So, have you driven a Tesla, Jimmy? Have you have you actually got behind the wheel of one? No, I haven't. We have. So you need to do that. An old car. So that's, I'd recommend that's the first thing you do. So. Um, I own a Model 3 and uh, and so do, I mean, members of our team own cars. I think uh, my CEO, CIO uh, owns three Teslas. Um, but for years, we wouldn't buy it in spite of the fact they are outstanding cars. So there's a lot to love about owning a Tesla. And um, um, so I won't go into that part other than, you know, the acceleration is ridiculous. They require virtually no servicing the software is amazing. I finish well, halfway through listening to something in the house and Spotify just transfers directly to the car so I can I can keep listening in the car. Um, and the fact that, you know, the, to charge it every night costs me a couple of dollars. And uh, like there's just so much good about the, the product. But um, and so that's one of our tests. Is it a great product? Is it disruptive? Is it innovative? Yes, tick, tick, all of those things. Is it is it being challenged by competitors? Yes. So the competitors have all said they're going to come out and uh, they're going to um, they're going to produce EVs. So in a way, they've basically won. They've said, "Wow, Tesla is right. We actually have to do this. This is really important." And in fact, some of the biggest ones have actually committed very substantially and in very short timeframes to convert basically their whole model range into EVs. But see, this is the problem is that they are very constrained by the fact they're not fully vertically integrated. So they're still using other people's parts um, to make these cars, uh, whereas Tesla has largely vertically integrated. So they got to design the thing from scratch. And and the, 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 the biggest challenge for their competitors is that um, it's very hard to make a profit out of an EV. In fact, most of them are not making uh, anywhere near enough money out of selling their EVs. And they still haven't worked out the whole value chain all the way to when you buy it. So one of the biggest challenges, and I found this here in Sydney when my wife was looking to buy an EV and we went down to the south of Sydney to where all the car lots are there. 
it's interesting. Um, car businesses down there, dealerships that actually have the model, the EV model on their website, don't sell them. And they couldn't explain to me why they didn't sell them. But I knew because I'd already been talking to, to the investment team because the, the dealer can't make money out of selling EVs because they don't require service and services where dealers make money. And so that's a major problem to be solved by uh, traditional auto dealers. Now, if Tesla was just a car company, then I think people would be um, justified in thinking, well, this is all a bit too expensive, you know, like that valuation on it at the moment, you know, are they going to be able to, in the next 10 years, produce 3 million, 10 million or 20 million cars? If you listen to Tesla, it's 20. We think it's somewhere in the middle of all of that. And that'll be a very profitable business. But you know what we really love about Tesla is the optionality. It's the full self-driving possibility. Now, I've watched a lot of YouTube videos in uh, in the last uh, last couple of months on full self-driving. That's people, You can just go to YouTube and pull in Tesla FSD and you'll watch lots of people driving around cities in America, um, essentially with their hands just resting on the wheel, uh, but not actually driving the car. Now, that can't be far away. I can't tell you whether it's a month or a year. Elon says this year, but he's been wrong before. But it's not 10 years away. And our time frame for looking at this, this, this business is 10 years. So we think there's a substantial up possibility there. The second one is their energy business. And by the way, the just before I move off that, full self-driving, if it were to come, will revolutionise transport, not just Ubers, taxis and Didi's and all of those. It, it, it will actually revolutionise the way that you drive generally and you, and you, and you consume transport, including public transport. So if it's cheaper to get into a comfortable electric car and be driven to work than it is to catch public transport, um, you'll do it. And that will really change the way that cities work. On top of that, there's the electric, and that's a massive market. That's million, that's trillions of dollars, the size of that market. And they, they would be the leader if they get there first on this. The second part is the energy market where we think they're the leader in that. Their auto bit of software allows them to, or, to offer all these services to the grid that are necessary. And their combination of batteries and the software, are, you know, it's very substantial. And um, the, the fact is that both the Model 3 and the Model Y, their most recent iterations, uh, widely available, have a two-way inverter in the car. And we're just speculating at the moment. We haven't, we're not running numbers on this, but uh, just think about the day when that car becomes your house battery. So you don't have to go and install a car, a special house battery. That 75 kilowatt hour battery sitting in your car gets plugged in and is able to be used by your house or by the grid, you know, and be paid for the service. Now that's not available yet. But once again, we like that optionality that in the future, once you buy the car, it becomes a profit item for you. That is, you start making money from your car, it doesn't become a cost item. And I think that's how people should really think of Tesla. If they think of it's just a car company competing against Toyota, then prob probably it is overvalued. But actually, if it's got all this optionality and these options start to play out, and by the way, Elon Musk has been very good at saying, this is what I'm going to do. And one by one, albeit a little slower than he said, he is ticking off the items. Um, I, I think it's it's very foolish to ignore the possibility that this is going to be one of the, the most innovative and outstanding businesses the world has ever known.
It's such an interesting perspective and we obviously have heaps of investors who agree with you. Uh, I think that point about your vehicle being your battery is a really interesting one. I'm I involved in a number of conversations with people who are absolutely planning all of their homes around that future. So yeah. they have yeah. electrified their homes, they've gotten rid of gas, uh, yeah. they've put on massive solar panels. So it's a sort of yeah. new move to maximise your solar roof panels because at some point every uh kilowatt hour that you produce from your panels you can pump into your car and then draw back at night time so uh it's interesting a lot of people are thinking that that is not too far away Gemma um to reach the sort of targets that the world now believes is necessary to avoid um catastrophic climate change carbon and the use of fossil fuels is going to get ridiculously expensive um, whether or not the government puts a tax on it or, or you know, a price generally, um, the world is going to put a price on carbon. And so the people that you're talking about who are doing that are absolutely spot on. Um, they're just future-proofing their lives. Yeah, that's exactly how they refer to it. They, um, they have very strong views on it. And I think most people are just desperate for the technology to arrive. They're not worried yeah. about whether or not it's good enough. They just want it here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, that's, I mean, I mean, this is a bit off topic, but I mean, that's the reality with, uh, with uh, renewable energy is that it's pretty hard to use fossil fuels more efficiently than we did, say, 10 years or even 20 years ago. But the beauty of renewable energy is that we just, with every passing day, we get better at doing it and more efficient. When uh, people were putting panels on their houses 10 years ago, uh, the average panel is exactly the same size as it was um, um, as it is today. Um, and it probably isn't that much difference in cost, but an average panel back in those days sort of produced 130 watts. And today they produce 360 watts. They're, or, you know, they're nearly three times more efficient than they were all, that, all those years ago. And that just keeps, that's a continuum. That just keeps going. Um, we're just going to get better at doing it. And there will be a time in the future that renewable energy will be essentially at, at the margin free. And that will change economies all around the world. And, and isn't it great? Australia is blessed. Not today. I'm looking out and it's the cloudiest day I've seen in a while. But we're blessed with a lot of sunshine. Yeah, it's fascinating to see how consumers, uh, even though we don't have you know, very robust conversations about decarbonisation in Australia politically, uh, consumers are all over it. Right. Yeah, the and investors should be too panels. because mm. carbon carbon on balance sheets is a massive risk. So the new world will be understanding. This is one thing that Hyperion's been pushing. Um, you know, this 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 dialogue for a while is that we've 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 looked at these businesses and determined that the businesses we invest in are sustainable in the long term, because essentially in the long term all these external costs will be internalised to the detriment of, um, of shareholders at the time. So we must be looking long-term when we're making these investments in the timeframes that investors should be looking at sort of over periods of five to 10 years. Yeah, you know the world's changing when Fortescue's got a 2030 target of being carbon neutral. So yeah. Yeah, no, <laughs> things are moving very quickly. So true, so true. Tim, Hyperion, you're soon to launch a listed version. I'm going to say soon to launch, but you're going to correct me. A listed version of your flagship product. You produce a lot of great insights and content. You talk about a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about today. Where do people go to find out more about you and your business? Yes. So um, clearly you could go to our website, um, hyperion.com.au. Um, and the product that we are listing is actually just... Um, 
a, a quoted version of our existing fund that's been operating for just short of seven years. Um, it is the same unit. It is the same price. It's just now available on the ASX. And uh, the listing date was 22nd of March. Um, and the ticker code is HYGG, HYGG. So you can just look that up. And that's now available instead of having to go through the whole fill out a long application form and go through all that rigmarole. You can just buy it online um, as, a, as a stock. All of our investors love that. Yeah, <laughs> if yeah, anyone's ever had to fill too. out an application form for a fund, uh, it's taken us too long to get to this point. But this is this is a new way of doing things through these quoted managed funds and uh, active active management. And uh, we think it's going to be the new way that people um, buy into managed funds. It's so much easier than than the previous way. So looking forward to seeing uh, your your listeners as as investors in our fund. Yeah, a little bit more disruption for you, right? Love it. <laughs> <laughs> Tim Samway from Hyperion Asset Management, thank you so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We've received fantastic feedback. We love getting your questions. We love knowing what you want to know more about. Tesla was one of those things. So please just email us at yourwealthatnab.com.au. We look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.